Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We start with BC's shortage of family doctors. Let's check in with Dr. Kevin McLeod now internal medicine specialist for the north shore of vancouver Lionsgate hospital very pleased to welcome him back to the show dr mcleod thanks for coming on today mike thanks for having me and um yes we definitely should get the soccer here that would be so much fun <laughs> you like you think that would be a good uh, a good idea it costs millions of bucks here for a few games you realize I mean, I, that, i'm but... not sure the taxpayers should be be losing out on it and yeah. you know i mean that that part's got to be really evaluated but you know, we're we're all in need of a, of a little bit more sort of positive energy and, and fun these days. So yeah, well, there certainly is a lot of uh, hysteria and mania right now for World Cup, given Canada's uh, men's soccer team performance lately. Talk about it. we got a great guest on that coming up at the bottom of the hour, Kevin. I follow you on Twitter. I encourage everyone to do so. The other day, you quoted you were away on a well-deserved break. When you got back. You, you tweeted, coming back shows how significant the lack of primary care is for patients. I've got 80 urgent requests to see patients who have no GP to access, no ability to get their meds renewed. How can 80 patients be seen safely in two days? Kevin, how did that work out for you the other day with all those patients backlogged for you? Uh, to be honest, I haven't caught up. Um, I was there through the weekend um, trying to catch up. It's, it's, it's a huge problem, right? I, I've been in practice for 15 years. And, you know, in the old days, so to speak, when I started, people had a family doctor and we kind of worked as a team. And, and more and more people have lost their family doc. I mean, I can speak best for the North Shore. A lot of people have retired. A lot of people have moved away. Unfortunately, we lost some to illness and even suicide. And so, you, you know, people, people have left. And, these poor patients don't have anywhere to go to. So you know, this is not optimal medical care, but I'll see somebody in my office. I maybe haven't seen them for two years. They have nowhere else to go. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they haven't had pretty significant medical problems really attended to, right? Like nobody's checked in on their diabetes. Their medications have just run out. And, and then what happens with these patients? They land in emergency or they're sicker or, you know, because they haven't controlled their blood pressure, then they got into some bigger heart problem that, ultimately cost taxpayers way more money and then we can't do things like soccer games right so yeah. it it is a it, it it really is becoming apparent the the crisis and the lack of family physicians now not everybody and, and i'll be criticized for saying this not everybody has to have a family doc right like there's some people who are young they got to get some birth control they don't need to have that longitudinal care in a perfect world they would but it's not essential but there's this huge collection of people who desperately want that longitudinal care and can't access it um, and that's that's a big big problem you mentioned in your post on social media the challenge for people to get prescriptions renewed when they don't have a family doctor are a lot of people i mean what's what's the option you got to go to a walk-in clinic i guess Right. Well, the problem with yeah, yeah, you do right now. The problem with walk-in clinics, a lot of them have closed, and and many people that haven't had to access a walk-in clinic may not realize this. But you've got to still often book an appointment online. Well, if you're 82 and you're maybe not super tech savvy, by the time you get on there to book the appointment, it's full for the day, right? So you you can't even get in and do that. And somebody just renewing your prescriptions, I see this time and time again where. You know, somebody's just had all their scripts renewed, and then you look at the drugs and you go, but why are you still on this? Like, you don't even need to be on this. You were put on this for a period of one year after you had, say, a cardiac stent. But it's been four years. Nobody's actually reevaluated it. And you you can't really expect the, the doc in the walk-in clinic who has, you know, a completely overwhelming schedule and three minutes to spend with you to kind of go through all your drugs and say, okay, well, you don't need this. Why are you still on this? This actually doesn't make sense. Maybe you should do this. Evidence changed. You know, so, so that kind of comprehensive care from somebody who knows you when you're a complicated patient is happening less and less. And, and that ultimately leads to worse outcomes and way more money spent, right? 
Speaking of Dr. Kevin McLeod about the shortage of family doctors in British Columbia, it seems to be getting worse, according to some of the statistics that have come out lately in B.C. It's been a political hot potato in British Columbia as well. We've had successive governments promise to do something about this. The situation does not seem to approve. Let's listen to a little bit of a question period the other day in the B.C. legislature when this issue came up. Kevin, I'll get your thoughts on the other side of this. You'll hear... Uh, you'll hear opposition leader, Liberal MLA Shirley Bond, here questioning Health Minister Adrian Dix. Have a listen. Will the Premier listen to British Columbians and take the action necessary to ensure that families have access to a family physician? As the member knows, we have been taking action consistently since I became Minister of Health. Primary care is fundamentally important to us and I think to everybody in B.C. 27 new urgent and primary care centres. 54 new primary care networks, an increase in the number of family physicians, which is more than any other jurisdiction in Canada. Okay, so he made he made the argument that we actually have an increase in the number of family physicians better than other jurisdictions in Canada, but there are other statistics indicating there are 900,000 people in BC who don't have a family doctor today compared, that's 200,000 more than five years ago. Dr. McLeod, like what's your, you're on the front line of the system. Do you think it's getting worse? It's, it's dramatically worse. So, you, you yeah. know, you can manipulate statistics. I think Adrian Dix is a really good guy. Like he, he you know, I've never been a big NDPer, but he, he's a really smart guy. And I think he's, he's very reasonable, but you know, we, we make this too complicated, right? We create these super complex urgent care structures and other things and then we spend gazillions of dollars administrating it it doesn't actually have to be complicated what you really have to do and i'm going to get hate mail from my colleagues from this is say look like specialists like mcleod are paid enough they don't need more money um let's redirect or direct all new monies to the family docs like that's where the crisis is it's the supply and demand system put the money where the crisis is and and just raise the single basic fee that a family doc sees or gets for seeing you in their office. I think it's, get the exact number, but it's like $31.50 when you see your family doc. That's what they get paid, and then they have to pay their overhead out of that. So, you know, visit a family doc. A family doc may keep $20 of that or $18 of that, something like that. You know, so, so raise that. By not spending a whole bunch more money, but redirecting money in the system now and, and not raising what specialists get because we get paid well as specialists. Um, and, and there's not a shortage of, of specialists in the same degree as there is for full service family practice doctors. And do that. I actually suspect you'd see the, the system sort of readjust and correct. A lot of family docs are leaving because yeah. the job's really hard. They can't spend time with patients because they have to see such a high volume to make it actually work. Like if you're getting 30 bucks a patient, you know, I can speak for the North Shore, your overhead's going to be at least $100 an hour. You got to pay rent, you got to pay property tax, you got to pay your staff, you know, if not 120 an hour. So you got to see three to four people an hour to break even. You know, so if you if you actually want to make a wage, you got to see eight people an hour. And and most people out there would go eight people an hour. How am I going to get good care when they're seeing eight people an hour? Well, you can't. But you're in a fee-for-service system, that's how it works. So if you raise the fee, the quality can actually go up and you attract more people into that. Um, if somebody's going to get 500 bucks for injecting Botox, well, you know, they're going to get pulled towards that, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's all simple supply and demand economics. Okay, Dr. McLeod, it's always great to have you on and get the perspective from the front lines of the system. Thank you for taking your t- uh, the time for us today. I appreciate you it a lot. got it. Anytime, Mike. Oh, yeah, World Cup fever in Canada right now after Canada's men's soccer team have just surged up the world rankings and their exciting 4 nothing win recently over Jamaica, which uh, qualified them for the World Cup coming up later this year. That is pretty awesome, and everyone is excited about it. We love it. What about, though, the 2026 World Cup? Now, that's the North America World Cup, North America hosting it. Canada, the United States, and Mexico won the rights to hold the World Cup. Now, remember back in 2018, so going back a few years ago now, B.C., when the government was asked whether we want a piece of this action on the World Cup, do we want to host World Cup games, 
the answer from the BC government was, hell no, we don't want to put taxpayers' money into World Cup soccer games. Forget about it. It's too expensive. We don't want to deal with FIFA and all their demands. We just didn't want any part of it. Well, that was then. Now there's been a flip-flop at the provincial level and the city of Vancouver also wants in on this now. So we're a little late to the party here, but now there's a move afoot. Let's get some World Cup soccer games in Vancouver in 2026. I got Chris Selly from the National Post standing by. Have a listen to this first. Now, this is Vancouver Mayor. You'll hear Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking here. You'll also hear Mayor, uh, Premier John Horgan and this report from Global News reporter Krista Dow. Have a listen to this. I will recommend to Council that we triple our past World Cup investment in 2026 and commit up to $5 million to help stage this event. A promise from the city's mayor to help bring the 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup Games to Vancouver. Vancouver had previously withdrawn its bid back in 2018, but both the mayor and the premier say times have changed. We're coming out of a global pandemic. Our tourism sector has been buffeted perhaps more than any other sector. I'm working as hard as I can to get us on the list on a very short time frame. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest Chris Selly, the very fine columnist at the National Post, and his column about this topic the other day. The headline was $290 million to host five soccer games. Walk away Canada. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Hey, Chris. So you think Canada should just say no to this? We what? Not worth it. Not worth the money for taxpayers. Well, the, the, Toronto has set out what it thinks this is going to cost, and we're talking about two hundred ninety million dollars, as you said, ninety million dollars of which will be borne by the city. But of course, you know, the province and the federal government—that's that's still taxpayer money. Yeah. Uh, and of course, as with all of these events, there's the promise that there will be this GDP impact that will slightly exceed, conveniently, every time it's just slightly exceed the cost of it. Um, but I think that's, that's just, you know, it's a mug's it's, it's, it's mug game. It's really hard to, to quantify those things. And the fact is that spending $290 million is, is just obscene because we don't need these things. You know, in the case of Toronto... Uh, and Vancouver might be slightly different, but in the case of Toronto, you know, there's $65 million for, for stadium upgrades to make BMO Field have 45,000 seats. Well, we don't need a 45,000-seat stadium in Toronto, <laughs> and there's no point building one for just five games. Ditto with all the, the uh, you know, world-class um, training facilities that you would need. All of those would have to have natural grass pitches. That's not something yeah. that you would normally do. Yeah. Um, so... You know, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a crazy proposition. And I think if a better deal could be negotiated with FIFA, for example, you know, you know, one of the most ridiculous things is FIFA keeps all the ticket revenues for this. So perhaps if, if, if there is a better deal to be had, then um, I would love to see it personally as, as a sports fan and as someone who, who uh, loves Toronto and would like to see it on, on the world stage. But it's notoriously difficult to negotiate with uh, FIFA, that just as it is with the IOC, to get a better deal because they know there's always someone else willing well, to do it. Well, I'm a soccer fan too, and I'm excited about Canada in the in the World Cup, and it certainly would be kind of a, a cool thing for the country. But when you talk about FIFA, a controversial organization to, to say the least, and their demands to host a small number of World Cup soccer games. It is a an expensive proposition. Now, here in British Columbia, for example, Chris, at BC Place Stadium, or whatever they would rename it, because under the deals with FIFA, they would have complete control of the stadium for two months, and they would rename the stadium for that period. They would also have a controlled area around the stadium, which would be controlled by FIFA. And here's the one that really jumped out at me. They would want to install two natural grass playing surfaces and we got artificial turf at bc place of course they would have to put in a natural grass playing surface at bc place stadium and then have another one standing by somewhere else in case something goes wrong with the first one so they can roll in another natural grass playing field i mean this is going to cost a fortune your thoughts absolutely and i mean you know I don't know if they've ever done it at BC Place, but there are times when they put in temporary natural grass pitches. Uh, I think they've done it at Olympic Stadium in Montreal. They've done it at Skydome in, in Toronto um, for sort of visiting uh, European soccer teams. But those are, those, you can't just, it, it has to be a proper natural grass pitch. It has to be a world-class 
um, thing. And, you know, players can tell the difference. Future can tell the difference. That's going to cost. I don't know how much it's going to cost, but however much it's going to cost, it's not needed for more than five games. Right. Um, And I I just think that's, you know, there's a reason there's there's artificial turf in BC place. (laughs) And I I just think it's, you know, even if it were just, even if it were the whole World Cup, it would be one thing. But for five games, yeah, it is. Uh, it and is and a, it's also, yeah. It's a, it's a high cost. It's a high cost to take, to swallow for sure. Speaking to Chris Selly from the National Post, another thing that FIFA demanded here in British Columbia in our first go around the Mulberry Bush on this one was they wanted a second independent power supply for the entire stadium. So they would have had to create a separate power grid for the entire BC Place Stadium. <laughs> just in case the first power supply from BC Hydro or whatever went down during a game. Like, the, the worst thing that could happen is you're having a game and it gets knocked off of global television that's being watched around the world. So you'd have to have an independent backup power supply for the whole stadium. They also wanted, like, 800 free parking spaces and police escorts for FIFA vehicles and the right to block roads and traffic at any time for two months and... Taxpayers would have to pay for a FIFA fan fest downtown, clean up the graffiti in the city. You know, I just, it, the demands go on and on. I mean, this is an organization that makes a lot of demands to host the World Cup, correct? Oh, absolutely. This, this is what they do. And, you know, you can tell that they're used to dealing with Qatar, <laughs> where, uh, you know, money is absolutely no object. Um, and and the, the reasoning, too, for, for Vancouver to suddenly get back in the ring, this, this idea of helping the tourism industry recover, just, like, it's a, this isn't for four years. <laughs> like, if the tourism industry hasn't recovered in four years, yeah. we've got bigger problems than hosting five uh, soccer games. Like, I, I, it's, it's a crazy idea, and, you know, I can't think who it was in that clip was talking about the very tight timeline. That's the worst way to try and get into one of these Thing, yeah, to do it in a rush. Right. That um, was that was the mayor of Vancouver saying, "Yeah, we're we're late to the party here, and so we're trying to get this deal done in short order because we want in on this party now." After ruling it out earlier, the other thing that the wild card here is when you're dealing with an organization like FIFA, they are notorious for changing the terms of, of deals. And originally, when we first originally ruled this whole thing out for British Columbia. One of the things the government was complaining about was FIFA demanded the right to unilaterally change the terms of the agreement after, right. even after it was signed. Now, there's some indication that maybe FIFA has relaxed their position on that. But have a listen to this, Chris, and I'll get your thoughts. This is Moshe Lander, who is an economics, uh, an expert in sports economics at Concordia University. And here he is making the point about how FIFA will often kind of change the terms of the deal. Have a listen to this. The thing with FIFA is that they micromanage every site that's going to host World Cup games. And what happens is FIFA starts showing up saying, I don't like this, I want this, add this. And that's when the cost can start to go up. Okay, is that a deal breaker, Chris, dealing with this organization in your mind? Well, I mean, shouldn't it be a deal breaker in any any agreement between any two parties that one party can't change the uh, can't change the terms of the agreement unilaterally after you've signed it. I mean, yeah. yes, of course that should be a deal breaker. Why would anyone sign up for that except for this? You know, understandably, you want to host the World Cup. I get that, but I mean, yeah, of, of course, you know, elementary logic would say you walk away from it, and I get that there's an emotional component too. But um, for for ten games, so that's all Canada would host. And, you know, there isn't even any guarantee it would be five games, right? Because conceivably, Edmonton, conceivably, FIFA could award, uh, could say, oh, okay, we're going to use three Canadian cities, Toronto, Edmonton, and Vancouver. Right. And suddenly, it's the same amount of money, but it's for three games. Yeah, you might get three games. games. Yeah. For the five. Right. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to me. And, and, you know, for Vancouver, I would say, you know, look, the Toronto City staff put together this exhaustive report and somehow concluded at the end of it that it was a good idea. But I, I would say read that report. Uh, it's on the city's website, and I think you will conclude otherwise. Okay. Chris, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. 
All right, take care. Joe, let's talk about the future of tourism now. Global tourism, of course, has plunged during the last two years because of COVID. Now people are starting to travel again. The tourism industry, though, the focus of a brand new documentary film that looks at the impact of tourism around the world. The film is called The Last Tourist, and it's playing tonight at Vancouver's beautiful Van City Theater. I've got Bruce Poon Tip standing by. He's the executive producer of the film. Have a listen to part of the trailer here for The Last Tourist. Have a listen. We as tourists have kind of lost the plot, I think. Holidays become cheaper. Over tourism and environmental degradation. Mass tourism has led to destruction. The world has become an oyster for the masses. We have a fundamental problem with tourism. Okay, that's a little bit of The Last Tourist, a new documentary film that is playing tonight at the Van City Theater. Let's check in with Bruce Poon Tip now. He's an executive producer of the film. Bruce is also the founder of G Adventures, which is a, a global adventure travel company. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Bruce, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Great to be back. Hey, Bruce, this is a very interesting idea for a documentary film. How did you get involved with this? Uh, well, I mean, it was a, an idea about five years ago about a, a message about how tourism, it was actually a message of hope, um, how tourism could have a positive impact. But, and it, but coming out of COVID now, um, you know, it's become somewhat of a how the travel industry can be just better, how we can travel better, how we can do better. And this, this opportunity because the entire industry was forced to come to a complete stop and we think how, you know, we think ourselves as an industry. And so it was an idea to send it actually originally kind of a, a message of hope about tourism. But now we're coming out of, of COVID and we have an opportunity as a travel industry to be a more transformational industry. Yeah, the film bills itself as a wake-up call to dramatically rethink the travel industry around the world. Mm -hmm. And if you take yeah. a look at some of the numbers... If you go back to 1950, there were 25 million international tourist arrivals in 1950. In 2020, that number expected to be 1.6 billion. 1.6 yeah. billion tourists from 25 million. What kind mm -hmm. of impact? That's the most of, of any other point in history. What kind of impact does that level of tourism travel have on the, on the planet and the world? Well, it has it had a huge impact on many on, on many aspects of of sustainability. Whether it's you know even you know the climate change, fossil fuels. I mean, there's that that you know that common issue that we are fighting as a, as a, as, a, as a planet. Uh, but there's also cultural impact, cultural heritage impact. There's uh, wildlife impact. There's you know it's and it's something that you know there's hotspots too. It's not an overall thing. It's not like you know it, it's not impacting the world equally. There's obviously areas where people really want to travel to and see and hot spots where the over tourism is an issue. And there's just no global kind of regulation of it. And it's, it's really hard to do it because we can't predict the patterns of what, what's, you know, popular to travel to this year is not necessarily going to be in five years time. So there's yeah. just a lack of regulation with all of that. Um, and there's no way to control it. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a better way that we can do it. And that's what the film explores. Are there any parts of the world where this concept of over-tourism has had a, a particularly deep impact? I mean, you're a guy who runs a, an adventure travel company. You send people all around the world. Are, yeah. there any, are there any parts of the world where you think there's just too much tourism going on? Yeah, I mean, in, I think that you know, the areas that they focus on with the, the over-tourism label are places like Venice. Um, you know, Machu Picchu, the Great Wall of China, these areas, the pyramids of Egypt, where there's a huge demand for these areas from mainstream travelers all over the world that want to see them in their lifetime, bucket list travelers. Everyone wants to see these places. And so it's not necessarily a country as such, um, but, you know, because the most visited city in the world is Paris. Um, but it's, you know, it's an impact on smaller communities and, um, and uh, tourist attractions and about preserving them for future generations that becomes the issue. And, um, and over-tourism can be defined in so many ways. I mean, people focus on Venice because there's millions of people that go there every year. But people are pushing into remote, remote areas and local communities where over-tourism might be 50 people. 
Speaking of Bruce Poon Tip, he's the executive producer of the documentary film The Last Tourist, which is showing tonight in Vancouver. Uh, Bruce, you mentioned that during COVID, of course, your company, like a lot of other tourism companies, j just really body slammed by the virus and, and the mm -hmm. lack of travel. We've talked about that in the show in the past. How are mm -hmm. things? How are things looking now? Well, things are definitely opening up. I mean, we have our, our fingers crossed that we're all going to have a strong season in Europe. That's going to really, you know, bookings are strong. It's not, it's, they've not returned to 2019 levels, but they're certainly returning. Um, but we're fighting for capacity now because, you know, when you look at all these countries, you know, we're fighting at the domestic markets in Italy now. You know, usually, you know, because so many people domestically traveling, we need hotel space, we need transportation to run our program in these countries. And it's hard to get space, but I mean, it's opening up. Um, you know, last November, we were opening up and business was very strong. And then Omicron hit as a variant. So and it, it, it collapsed the industry again. So we're cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, every time I hear a news story about another variant that they're talking about, I'm wondering how much impact it's going to have. I, I truly believe now we've, we've gotten to a stage now as a planet that we realize that COVID is not going anywhere. Um, two years of, sh of shutdown is enough. And we just have to learn to live with it. And I just hope that the rest of the world um, believes that, and every country is different right now. Uh, as the country rolls open, or the world rolls open, there's still a lot of countries that have testing requirements or government hotel quarantines that is not it's not allowing us to be fully operational everywhere. But you know, we're 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 operating tours in about 50 countries right now. Prior to COVID, we had over 100 countries. So we're working with local governments to get the countries open and borders open and. And um, yeah, and there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of hope at the moment for the first time in a long time. The, the documentary film that you're involved with, The Last Tourist, that's kind of a, a bleak title. It kind of almost suggests like the, the end of tourism, but it does, the film does talk about the impact around the world on the, on the environment, wildlife, indigenous populations around the world from tourism, but it also talks about a like a way forward, like a new style of travel, right? Like, and, yeah. and I know that's something that you focus on there at your company. What can you say about that? Like for people who are thinking, okay, I want to go on a holiday. I want to go on an adventure travel, but you know, I don't want to hurt the environment. I want to do something positive. What, what kind of, yeah. what kind of travel opportunities are there for people like that? I mean, well, the last tourist is, uh, the, is, the concept is about, you know, that we, you know, society makes us tourists, you know, we're born explorers. Uh, we're born with a natural curiosity to want to see the world, but we suddenly become tourists and we, um, you know, book travel based on amenities and comfort levels um, and entertainment as opposed to being connected to the destination. So the, the first, the best thing you can do as a traveler is change your mindset. You know, when you decide to go on holiday, you have to realize what a privilege that is. There's very few people on this planet that have the opportunity to say, I want to go on, on a holiday this year and travel internationally. It's such a small percentage of the human population that has that privilege. And that simple mindset that travel is a privilege and not a right uh, will change the, the whole landscape of the tourism industry. The fact that, you know, I pay, you know, I pay for certain services. I paid for these amenities. I demand, you know, certain service when I travel. Like that mindset of travel being your right uh, and changing that to being your privilege, it, it's a privilege to travel. That mindset would have a massive impact on yeah. the travel industry and, and traveling, how you book your travel, how you spend locally, making sure the money stays in hand, booking locally owned hotels. Travel can be a transformational experience for everyone, not just you as the person who purchases the travel. Would you say that, like looking back at the COVID experience, and as you said, it's not, it's not over and who knows what mm -hmm. lies ahead, but you know, do you think in some ways that the COVID experience for the travel industry has presented an opportunity to sort of rethink the way that tourism operates or the travel experiences that people can have around the world? Yes. I mean, that's the biggest message I, I'm hoping for the last tourist, the documentary is that as a, as a travel industry, we have an opportunity to rethink, but it's motivated by the, our customers. I mean, our customers are going to rethink how they travel on the other side of COVID because COVID's not going away. We've all established that. So travel is going to, for the foreseeable future, is going to have an inherent risk. So if, if you're going to travel because it's so important to you, you're going to be more connected to where you go, why you go, and be more purposeful. That slight change, prior to COVID, the travel industry was in a very dangerous place where people were just booking capacity and, 
amenities. It's about, you know, 10 restaurants and Broadway shows and indoor zip lining, surfing, whatever it was. The destination was no longer relevant. Uh, but today, if a traveler is going to travel, it has to be meaningful to them. Um, and they have to really want to do it because it's going to be different and it's going to be inherent risk. And you have to follow certain protocols to travel. So it has to be more meaningful. And that's the whole idea of travel should be more meaningful to you. It should be purposeful and you should be connected to where you're going and why you're going there. And that's the best thing that could happen to the travel industry right now. Bruce, uh, good luck with the film tonight. Welcome to Vancouver. I hope you enjoy you. The, the showing tonight. Thanks for coming on tonight, today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, we've talked a lot about the pressures on people in the healthcare system, especially for healthcare workers on the front lines during the pandemic. There's been a lot of stress. There's been a lot of burnout and anxiety. But it's not only for the healthcare system for human beings. It's also uh, the same thing happening in the veterinarian sector of healthcare as well. Uh, veterinarians in British Columbia and across Canada are reporting a lot of stress and burnout on the job. And we've talked about this on the show before and the need to train more veterinarians in our province. And we're happy to see that that's happening now. British Columbia now announcing they will double the number of seats that the province will subsidize for first-year veterinary college to address a shortage here in British Columbia. That's something that people have been calling for for a long time. I've got Dr. Robert Ashburner standing by to talk about this. Have a listen to this here first. Now, here's veterinarian Dr. Michelle Dimitro talking about the stress that veterinarians are feeling. Have a listen. I got to get out of this for my mental health. I can't continue to to go through this because there might be a time where I won't be able to make it through. There's going to be more people getting out, good, awesome veterinarians getting out of the business because they can't handle it anymore. Yeah, that's pretty sad to hear when people go into the veterinary college. They do it as a, a real calling, I think, and a yearning to work in that sector. But Boy, a lot of people feeling the stress in the train. Uh, strain here right now. Have a listen to this. This is Dr. Serge Chalhub here from the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association and talking about some of the challenges here. Have a listen. I know personally of two colleagues um, in the past year that have committed suicide. So I think like just any other profession, we struggle with that. I think we certainly can do much better as a profession. It certainly starts at our school. We have recognized a lot more and we try as much as possible to allow an open door for anyone who wants to talk about anything. And we take it very seriously. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Robert Ashburner. Robert is a veterinarian in Vancouver. He's with the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Robert, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Robert, can you talk a little bit about the stress and strain that veterinarians are feeling on the uh, front line of the system here right now? What's going on? Well, for the last uh, uh, three to four years, it started pre-COVID, uh, we've had a, a shortage of veterinarians uh, actually all across the country, but quite acute in uh, British Columbia. And uh, what it means is uh, we aren't able to keep up with the demand for uh, veterinary services, either for pet animals or uh, even more severe for um, food animals in the uh, farming areas of the province. And uh, it, it, uh, veterinarians feel sort of responsible to fill all these rules and it, uh, uh, people get uh, burnt out and feel overworked and that type of thing. Yeah, what are you hearing from people on the front line spe specifically? I I've talked to veterinarians who feel like, you know, sometimes they're dealing with uh, pet owners who can be difficult to deal with, uh, can be, uh, you know, we can get into bullying situations in veterinary offices. What, what are you hearing from people? Well, um, I do believe that uh, that occurs. We, I have an office in Vancouver, and, and we do see that sometimes. But um, it's it's a bit of it's a fr it's uh, not sort of directed at the veterinarian. It's a frustration with uh, how the system is going. And you have a pet that uh, uh, needs medical care, and you phone, and uh, somebody's not able to see you for a week, and uh, yeah. that animal may be suffering. So you know, that that's hard to deal with for people who uh, love their animals. Yeah, we heard in a couple of those powerful clips that we just played there about, you know, even veterinarians who are feeling burned out, stressed out. And in, in some cases, there have been cases of veterinarians who actually end up taking their own lives. Have you heard about that, too? Yes, that has, that has certainly happened. 
um, wow. uh, uh, with veterinarians being, uh, uh, I, I guess, I guess we feel it as a caring profession that that we want to help uh, all all the uh, animals that uh, that we can, and uh, when that doesn't, uh, when that can't occur, uh, people do get very stressed and, and burnt out from that. Yeah, are some veterinarians leaving the profession? I know that people who go into this profession do it. I, I imagine as a calling, they feel very passionate about it, and be a tough thing to leave something that you love. Yes, uh, that's right. I mean, most people go in it for the love of the profession, uh, right. not not to make a lot of money. And the um, uh, you are right. I mean, people do get burned out and they leave, or uh, they have to take time off, and uh, with the intention of coming back, which is fine. But uh, if people take time off and we're short uh, of uh, personnel already that just exacerbates the situation yeah we saw those natural disasters in british columbia the flooding the landslides and the terrible impact that had on agricultural operations in the valley with a lot of animals that were destroyed in the floods i mean that had to put huge pressures on on the veterinary system in, in bc i imagine it certainly did uh, but fortunately we have sort of a cooperation across the country and uh, Although I don't believe it was required, we had uh, veterinarians from other provinces uh, lined up to come and help with those uh, with that disaster relief uh, when it when it was occurring. Yeah, speaking to Dr. Robert Ashburner, Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, about this shortage of vets in Canada, especially right here in in BC. I know it's very difficult to get into veterinary college. Like a lot of people dream about this job and then they find it difficult to actually get into the training. There's a very high bar you have to pass to, to get into a, a veterinary college to get the training. Why is that? Like if we've got such a shortage, how come we haven't been training more vets if people want to do the job? Well, the uh, veterinary school is a very specialized institute and the veterinary college for western canada um with the exception of alberta but for bc saskatchewan and manitoba is in saskatoon the western college of veterinary medicine and um up until yesterday actually um british columbia only had 20 seats out of 70 there um there were there are an additional 20 available and we just had an announcement yesterday morning from the province that they were going to fund uh, 20 additional seats which uh, is uh will really help us i mean it's a four-year delay until those uh, veterinarians can get out and practice, but it's certainly a, a step in the right direction to help some of the things you and I have just been talking about. Yeah, that that announcement was key yesterday from Ann Kang, the Minister of Advanced Education, announcing BC will double the number of seats that the province will subsidize for first-year veterinary college students to address this shortage of veterinarians. How big of a a help will that be in BC? I mean, there's a lag time, like you mentioned, it takes four years to get through the training, right? Yes. Uh, well, uh, once the uh, once the process is, is finished, it it will certainly help. I mean, it's 20 additional a year. We did a study three years ago that said by this year we'd be 100 veterinarians short. So it's not going to meet the whole amount, but it's certainly a uh, a great boon, and we're very grateful to the Department of Advanced Education. Um, we do have other programs in effect where we are trying to attract veterinarians from other provinces, uh, foreign trained veterinarians to uh, come to the province to practice to uh, help uh, make up this uh, deficit in number of people. Yeah, it's it's really, uh, when we have those new veterinarians trained up and on the job, can people expect that there would be a shorter wait time if, if they have a sick pet and maybe they're experiencing, like like you just described, they call the local veterinary office and there's a backlog. They can't they can't get their pet in for treatment. Farmers and ranchers who have been uh, seeking veterinary help from veterinarians as well. Will that improve if we double yes, the we, number of people people we're training? Yes, we certainly uh, anticipate that it uh, that it will. Uh, that along with the, uh, some of the other programs that we are uh, we ha- actually have been working on for the last couple of years, we're hoping that uh, that will. Uh, uh, alleviate the problem and, and make it sort of more normal like it was two or three years ago where uh, you could at least expect that timely veterinary care. Okay, well, this is uh, an issue I know you've been signaling for a while. It's gl- it's good to see the province uh, responding to it uh, this week. Dr. Ashburner, thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much. Back to the show as we continue talking about the shortage of veterinarians across Canada, but particularly right here in BC, the shortage quite acute here. This is something we've talked about on the show uh, before. The BC government announcing yesterday they will double the number of 
new veterinary students entering veterinary college a uh, cost of $10 million to train up more veterinarians here in B.C., something that people have been asking for for a long time, including my next guest, Liberal MLA Ian Payton, who's been speaking out about this uh, for quite a while. Ian, thanks for coming on today. Thanks. Good morning, Mike. How long have you, how long ago did you see this first coming? I mean, I know that you're a farmer, you're a farmer, uh, your brother's a veterinarian, right? So, I mean, you saw this thing coming, I think, a, a lot bef- uh, earlier than a lot of people. Well, Mike, actually, before I even got into provincial politics uh, on my farm and as a dairy farmer, you could see over the years uh, the number of veterinarians sort of starting to dwindle uh, with the numbers and the number of people wanting veterinary services, not only with small animals, but obviously with large animal practice, uh, especially with dairy farms and a lot of the ranchers upcountry that are a long ways apart. So a lot of times a veterinarian has a long, long travel time just to get out to a ranch to uh, to deal with some issues with uh, with cattle. Yeah, so this has been a shortage for a while, right? It certainly has. And, you know, I was just looking up this morning, Mike, it goes all the way back to 2019 that we first started to really raise this issue in the legislature, and and I guess we're doing our job as the official opposition because we've been at this thing for three years now in question period, uh, in the media, in budget estimates, and, and we've been all over this. And every time the Minister of Advanced Education said, no, we're not going to do anything, we're not going to do anything, but I think I guess we've done our job, because as of yesterday, as you know, they finally uh, caved and said, yeah, we will support the funding of an extra 20 seats at the uh, the veterinary college in, in Saskatchewan. Right, so that announcement yesterday from the provincial government, Advanced Education Minister Ann Kang announcing B.C. will double the number of seats that the province subsidizes for first-year veterinary college spaces, so this is at a cost of $10 million. That will support 40 students entering the Western College of Veterinary Medicine this fall. Will that make a difference? Absolutely, Mike. And and to your viewers that may not understand this, uh, a subsidized seat is still very expensive at $11,000 a year for a student. But believe it or not, talk about, you know, winners and losers. you know, 20 subsidized seats from BC, students paid $11,000, but the other 20, if they wanted to go there, uh, if they were accepted, would pay $68,000 a year. So you can imagine wow. a student paying $68,000 a year for a four-year program to become a veterinarian. It would take them forever to pay off their debt just to become a veterinarian. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm wondering why we're in this situation when we've had people calling for years, have been signaling this for years that this was a problem. I mean, this is something that you've been talking about. The veterinary, the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association has been talking about this for a long time. Why has it taken this long? You know, it just seemed like this is kind of no brainer. Like we got a shortage of these professionals. Why aren't we training more? Well, you know, absolutely. And, and Mike, throughout this pandemic, we've really seen uh, the situation uh, get worse with so many people that went out and purchased pets uh, during yeah. the pandemic. And even from my office where my, my office is in Delta, there's a veterinary uh, clinic just literally across the street. And people are lined up because they don't want people in the office with the COVID pandemic. So, People would come out and, and, and nurses would come out and, and deal with dogs and cats and people literally out on the sidewalk. So, you know, and with so many pets that have been adopted throughout the pandemic, there's just a lot lot more need for veterinarians and for shots and vaccinations and all these different things. And, of course, it's really becoming a problem in our rural areas with veterinarian shortages uh, with our ranching community. I mean, this is... This is big business, and and uh, it's it's pretty difficult when you you can't get a veterinarian or a veterinarian might take two or three or four hours to get there. Just got a minute left here, Ian. So the the province announcing yesterday a little over ten million dollars in funding to support twenty more students entering veterinary college. Obviously, that that will help will make a difference. But do you think more needs to be done at this point? 
Well, here's the scary thing, Mike. Uh, and I just finished a, a, what's called budget estimates questioning the agriculture minister. And I said, okay, well, this is good news. I'm uh, happy to hear that, that we're going to subsidize um, 40 seats uh, each year. But right. I said, will this continue on after this year? And they would not give me an answer. So it sounds like they're committed to do this for the 22-23 school season, but they haven't committed to do it any further than that. So we'll have to wait oh. and see. Should it be permanent, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We we need 500 new veterinarians here in the next uh, five years, so we've got <sighs> to get on with this program and get 40 a year uh, graduating from Saskatchewan. Okay, well, I think you've done a good job in this file. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, let's talk about the problems faced by Canadian charities right now. The trend lines here are troubling. Donations are down while demand for charitable services going up. Uh, yeah, those are going in the wrong direction here. The situation is outlined in the annual giving report released today by the charitable group Canada Helps. Have a listen to this. this is Marina Glogovac here who's the president and CEO of Canada Helps uh, talking about how many Canadians are turning to charities for assistance. Have a listen. As many as 26% of Canadians have indicated that they will be unable to afford basic needs this year due to challenges brought about by the pandemic and inflation. And they will soon need to rely on support from charities to make ends meet. This is up from 11% of Canadians who are currently relying on charities for basic needs such as food and shelters and other necessities. Okay, Marina Glogovac there from Canada Helps, uh, talking about the number of Canadians indicating they may need help from charities here. Here she is talking a little bit more about the rising demands. Canada Helps has projected a 12% drop in overall giving, and for many charities, this actually may prove to be catastrophic as they face rising demand for their services as more Canadians face financial uh, difficulties due to the pandemic and inflation. Okay, so demand for ser charitable services going up, charitable giving going down. Let's discuss with Nicole Denazy, Manager of Donor Marketing at Canada Helps. Nicole, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, those are some troubling trend lines that we're seeing here in your brand new report. Let's talk about the demands for charitable services here. 26%? That That is how many Canadians who may, did that say may seek help from charities? Is that correct? That's right. So we surveyed a group of char uh, Canadians earlier this year to understand the demands that charities are currently facing and that can, the, the demands that charities are um, supporting Canadians. And that number currently is at 11%. And if we asked if inflation and the pandemic continued throughout the year 2022, how many more Canadians would be turning to charities to serve basic needs? And by basic needs, we really mean, you know, food and shelter primarily. And that number, as you said, could potentially hit 26% according wow. to our survey. Wow, that's a lot. That's a, a sharp increase, obviously, to, to say the least. I know you guys have been doing this annual report for a few years now. Is that the highest number you've seen? We have been doing uh, this report for the last several years, but this is actually the first time we've asked this question. So we don't have a current baseline, but it'll be interesting to see potentially, you know, moving forward where that number goes. Yeah, what kind of help are people looking for typically? Well, at Canada Helps, we list all eighty-six thousand registered Canadian charities on our website, and those charities really range everywhere, everything between your local animal shelter to food, uh, food banks homeless shelters, really the list goes on and on. It also supports other organizations that may not serve more urgent needs, such as arts and culture organizations or education sort of based organizations. Um, but, you know, it's quite clear with the numbers that charities are facing this really urgent demand that is yeah. coming from Canadians who are really affected by the pandemic and inflation. But at the same time, Charities also are facing declining donations, which is also quite challenging as well. Yeah, speaking to Nicole Denazy from Canada Helps about some of the trend lines in their brand new report today. Uh, demands for help from charities is up dramatically in Canada. 
charitable giving going in the other direction. Let's talk a little bit about that, Nicole. So charitable donations are, they're going down. Is that correct? Right. So as, as Marina uh, said in the clip that you played, our team has actually projected that during the course of the pandemic, so about 2019 to 2021, our team has projected that overall giving has declined in Canada by about 12%. Um, in terms of sort of where things are going this year, the survey that we also conducted earlier this year resulted in one in four Canadians expecting to give less in 2022 than they did last year, which, you know, is quite problematic. I will say, though, that even before the pandemic, giving was on a steady decline. Um, When we're looking at tax filer data in 2006, uh, 25% of Canadians actually claim charitable tax donation or charitable tax credits, excuse me, on their taxes, that number dropped about six points to 19% in 2019. So we're seeing this decrease in uh, in giving. Um, Interestingly enough, families in the income bracket of about 150,000 and higher have actually been the group that has decreased the most um, by about 3.3% from 2006 to 2019. Well, that's very interesting. The report is a really fascinating snapshot of charitable giving in Canada, for sure. And one of the other ones that jumped out at me, Nicole, was uh, sort of the age brackets and demographics of of Canadians who who give to charities. What did you find out there? Like, are are younger Canadians, younger Canadians might be getting hit uh, the worst in some ways by this economy. Are they giving less right now to charity? Well, it's quite interesting. There's actually a lot um, that's outlined in the report in terms of generational giving. But what I can say is that um, baby boomers are actually giving um, more than any other generation, which may or may not be surprising. In the years 2006 to 2019, baby boomers increased their giving by 3.9%. In the same time frame, Generation Z, uh, so our youngest sort of group of Canadians we surveyed, uh, decreased their giving by 2.1%. Millennials decreased their giving by 1.6%. And most, um, I think most people would be quite surprised is that Generation X actually had the largest drop, decreasing their giving by 3.1%, which was quite interesting. One of the things that we have talked about in our report this year and also in years prior is this thing that we call the giving gap. And what that means is as older Canadians are um, no longer able to give. And as I mentioned, that's the age bracket that's giving the most and increasing their their amount of giving. As they're no longer able to give, unless these younger generations are able to really fill that gap, charities are going to be left with a major funding gap that they will need to be able to fill in order to fulfill these really critical services that they work on every day. Wow. Okay. That's some really, really fascinating uh, analysis there of where we're at with charitable giving in Canada and Canada helps. What do you guys do there? I mean, you do, you coordinate online donations for charities. Is that right? That's right. So for the last 22 years, our team, uh, we're an online donation platform. So anyone can visit canadahelps.org. We list all 86,000 registered Canadian charities. So these are organizations that are registered with the Canada Revenue Agency. And we allow Canadians to give uh, to any charity in Canada. You can find really any cause that you care about um, and choose the different ways that you want to support those organizations. Okay, and it sounds like it's more important than ever right now to to do that. That's definitely true. You know, all Canadians, of course, have been really hit hard by the pandemic and also currently, especially with inflation. But for those who have really been hit the hardest, it's been quite difficult. Um, and that's where we're really seeing that 11%, as I, as I mentioned earlier, are, you know, needing charities in order to meet the most basic necessities. Yeah. So. Really, this is a call for any any Canadian who's in the position to be able to give to please support your favorite causes uh, really generously if you can. Nicole, thank you for coming on. Thank you for the good work you're doing there at Canada Helps. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.